Well, turn with me to 1 Samuel 17, and I'm going to pray for just a moment while you find that text. Our Father, we come to you this evening thrilled with the Word of God. As Christians, we have all the knowledge of the heavens that we are meant to have, that we are capable of having. We have all the answers to the questions that mankind has been asking for thousands of years. We have all the the answers to the questions of eternity, all the answers to the questions of God and His plan. And so tonight, as we add to our own understanding through this text in 1 Samuel, we would ask you, Lord, to glorify yourself in our hearts, our minds, our actions. Would you teach us, Lord, to view the Scriptures through the lens of the whole redemptive plan of God? That it is one story from Genesis to Revelation leading to a glorious moment when the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, will return in glory. And so I pray that our understanding of this little piece of that story would help us to walk with you in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in our study on the millennium, particularly in this mini-series concerning some of the biblical covenants and how they impact the coming millennial reign of Christ, I thought this was as good a place as any to include a consideration of what is probably the best-known story in the whole Bible, and that is the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath, probably the most famous of all biblical stories, has been used for ages by both religious people and even non-religious people in, in settings of all kinds. And the primary use of this story has been to talk about the concept of the long shot, the, the overcomer, the long shot coming out a winner, the weak overcoming the strong, the miraculous upset of some sort. That when the, the team that's 0 and 15 beats the team that's 15 and 1, uh, that's a David and Goliath situation, that sort of thing. In fact, when I use the phrase, this is a David and Goliath situation, everybody knows what that means. It needs no explanation. A young man, David, going up against Goliath, the giant who had killed countless enemies in years of fierce, seasoned, hand-to-hand combat. Countless sermons have been preached on how to slay the Goliaths in your life. How to put down the giants that are before you, and it becomes immediately very applicational. But tonight I'd like to examine this story, but with the end goal of keeping the millennium in mind. The goal of the Millennium Series is to continue our our eyes forward toward the future. And I'd like to show you the importance of the David and Goliath story to the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And it'll take us a while to get there, so we're going to just begin. This is an epic chapter with 50-odd verses, 58 verses. And so let's begin with understanding what's happening here. About a dozen miles west of the town of Bethlehem, there's a little mountain and another little mountain, and in between them is a valley, and that is called the Valley of Elah. Little valley on my uh, social media account, X, the service formerly known as Twitter, my background photo is the Valley of Elah, and it's a picture I took myself, and I'm really proud of that picture. It turned out really well, so I put it there on on, uh, X, used to be Twitter, 
And I've even posted on there, does anybody know what this is? Nobody's been ever, ever able to figure it out. But the Valley of Elah, that becomes the setting for the most well-known man-to-man combat battle in the history of the world, David and Goliath. Everyone knows about David and Goliath. So how does this begin? Verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their camps for battle, and they were gathered at Socha, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Socho and Azekah in Ephes Damim. But Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and arranged themselves for battle to meet the Philistines. Now the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And so the situation is tense. You have two armies poised to attack one another at any time. Tensions are running high every single day. But the Philistines, the historic enemy of Israel, They've challenged Israel by backing them into a seemingly impossible situation. They've backed them into a corner. Instead of just a normal battle, the Philistines have suggested that they have a representative battle. A battle with their best warrior fighting Israel's best warrior. But the Philistines aren't playing nice because their best warrior is a beast. He's a beast. Verse 4 Then a champion came out from the camps of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, and the weight of that scale armor was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves or leggings on his legs, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before them. And he stood and called out to the battle lines of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to arrange yourselves for battle? Am I not the Philistine and you slaves of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and strike me down, then we will become your slaves." But if I prevail against him and strike him down, then you shall become our slaves and serve us. You have Goliath of Gath, six cubits and a span. Some say nine feet, six inches. Others say nine feet, nine inches. I go with the nine feet, nine inches because the span is how far it is between your finger, your, your finger and your thumb. Mine's nine inches and I'm not that big of a guy. So probably nine, nine in that range. He's clothed in chainmail armor that weighs about 150 pounds itself. He has a spear with a shaft that's two and a half inches thick. You ever driven one of those stakes in the ground that you hold up a new tree with, those big old monsters? It's that thick. And on the end of that, there's an iron spearhead that weighs almost 17 pounds. So, so this thing is, is, is not small. The armor itself is huge. Now, many scholars have said that a massive man of that size isn't possible. We're going to leave that to the side for now. But we do know this. He was big enough for the response of Israel to be total terror. That's how they responded. Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Why is it significant that King Saul was greatly afraid? Well, we have to go back to the days of yore when Israel wanted to be just like her neighbors. And Israel complained to the prophet Samuel that they wanted a king who would be a mighty warrior for them. They wanted to be just like everyone else. 
And so in 1 Samuel 8, 20, the people cried out to Samuel the judge that they wanted the king, quote, to go out before us and fight our battles. This is why they hired him. So Saul was chosen. He was chosen because of what was on the outside. 1 Samuel 9, 2 says, Now he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Meaning there wasn't a man in Israel who even came up to Saul's shoulder. He was the biggest man there. And so when Goliath is challenging Israel to send a warrior out to meet him on the field of battle, Goliath is taunting the king. He's taunting Saul. And, and I would guess that everybody's looking at Saul going, when are you going to make your move, bud? Because it's not me. I'm 5'4". You're huge. Saul was the biggest man that Israel had. But Saul wasn't having anything to do with this. So there Israel's army sat, humiliated, waiting for a champion. And they waited for over a month. Verse 16. Then the Philistine approached morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, and this time it actually is a ranch, the sheeplands of uh, Jesse near Bethlehem, there's David. Verses 12 through 15 tell of David's involvement to this point. David was the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse. He was a keeper of the family's sheep. By now, Jesse is old. The three oldest sons of Jesse are there in the Valley of Elah with the the army of Israel, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. What was David's job? Nothing very glorious. He was to run errands back and forth between his brothers at the battle line and his father, Jesse. In verses 17 through 19, Jesse is told David to take food to his brothers, to take a gift of food to the commander which his boys were serving under, and to bring back something from the brothers, a token, he calls it, just to show that they're okay, to prove to their their dad that they're all right. Verse 20. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and carried the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the military force was going out in battle lines, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines arranged themselves in battle lines, battle line against battle line. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And as he was speaking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the battle lines of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words and David heard them. David heard the challenge from Goliath and so he starts asking some of the guys around him, hey, what, what does the guy who strikes down the Philistine get? What would I get if I did that? And in typical oldest brother to youngest brother fashion, David got an earful of, rebu- of rebuke from Eliab, his oldest brother. Verse 28, And Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David and said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I myself know your arrogance and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a word? When he says, what have I done now? That speaks volumes to a lifetime of being oppressed by his oldest brother, right? And in typical youngest brother fashion, David completely ignored Eliab and went about his business anyway. He kept asking around, what does the man who defeats the Philistine get? Well, David's pestering of the men got someone's attention, the king himself. 
Verse 31, then the words that which David spoke were heard, and they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was shepherding his father's sheep, and a lion and a bear would come and take a lamb from the flock. And I would go out after it and strike it and rescue the lamb from its mouth. Then it rose up against me and I would seize it by its beard and strike it down and put it to death. And Saul, after ever so briefly trying to talk David out of this suicide mission, Saul tells David in verse 37, go and may Yahweh be with you. Now we don't know what Saul was thinking I, one guess is better you than me, buddy. That's kind of, I would think, because he hasn't gone out yet. But maybe it would at least buy him a little time while David went and got himself killed, that maybe that's an extra day they could figure things out. So was, was David just a bragging, boasting kid who had no idea what he was taking on? Was he just braggadocious and just thought, well, I can do anything? Well, I want to leave this upcoming fight for a while. Because we need to draw back to look at the bigger picture. We need to raise up a little bit. And I'd like to show you that the episode of David and Goliath is related both to the past and to the future. It provides a foreshadowing of the future, the past and the future. I'd like to show you this from four viewpoints or four vantage points. The first viewpoint we'll call the foretelling of David's victory. The foretelling of David's victory. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover. Probably best to just note some of the scripture references I'm going to give you. But we have to travel back to Ur of the Chaldees, to God's conversation with Abram, as recorded in Genesis 12. Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I spent two messages on God's covenant with Abraham, so I'm not going to belabor all the details again. But I do want to focus on one particular detail, one piece of this promise. God made this promise in Genesis 12, 3. The one who curses you I will curse. That's the promise we want to focus on. Now, in fact, we have to take apart those two cursings, as it were, because they're different. First, God speaks of those who curse Abraham. And by extension, this is very important, by extension, all who are descended from Abraham, the nation. But this curse is a verbal cursing, a reviling, a dishonoring, an insulting, a threatening. Or a common way to say this was to say that you were bringing reproach on someone. Remember that word, reproach. It's to declare that someone is insignificant, that they're small, that they're less, that they're worthless, that they're nothing. The one who curses you, the reviling, God says, I will curse. Now for this second one, God uses a different word. To speak of the cursing God will do. This is not a verbal curse. This isn't an insult. This isn't a, oh yeah, and I'll say this. No, this is a curse as in declaring someone's coming destruction. Declaring that their end is near. It is to bind them under a curse. It's a word that in extra biblical sources could be used to speak of a spell being cast. It is is something that is going to happen. 
It means to make a snare or to bind up. It can be like a noose or a sling. It is to bind someone supernaturally with supernatural power, to render someone powerless, to resist. And I want you to notice that in God's promise to Abraham, there's, there's no middle ground. The one who blesses Abraham and all of his offspring will be blessed. And the one that would curse Abraham and all of his offspring will be cursed, doomed to judgment from God. Now, just a little side note here related to premillennial theology. If Israel is a temporary feature in God's redemptive program, then at some point God should stop honoring that promise, but he doesn't. So God has made this promise to Abraham. Does the promise continue? Does it keep going? Is this just good for a few days or for a week or for a month? Well, just a few chapters later in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that the nation that will come from his body will be enslaved for four centuries, which of course we know is by Egypt. But God makes another promise concerning Egypt. Genesis 15, verse 14, but I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved. Why? Because God promised the one who curses you, I will curse. We fast forward hundreds of years to the time when God has rescued Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. God has kept his word. He's destroyed the entire army of Pharaoh Amenhotep II. The people are now journeying out into the wilderness and there's no water. And so God provides for them water after their sinful grumbling and complaining. But they go from the frying pan into the fire. From one difficult challenge now to immediate danger to the whole nation Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8, records that the Amalekites came, a fierce people, and they attacked Israel. Moses commanded his second in command, Joshua, to raise up an army to fight the Amalekites. And you remember the story. It's, it's classic. Moses took his stand at the top of a nearby hill the next day for this battle with his hands raised up over Israel. And when his hands were raised up, Israel was winning, but when Moses got tired and his hands fell, then the Amalekites were winning. So two men, including Moses' own brother Aaron, held Moses' hands up until Joshua overwhelmed the Amalekites in battle. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, it might be easy to be numbed to the idea of so-and-so attacked Israel and -and so-and-so attacked Israel. It seems like it's a regular occurrence. But this is special. What's so special about this particular attack? Well, there's several things. First of all, the Amalekites refused to believe that Israel was God's special people. And they had the opportunity to do that. They could have done that. They could have done something completely different. They could have sent representatives to Israel to say, in essence, we are a foreign nation from you, but we recognize that your God is the God who defeated Egypt. And thus we will serve you and we will serve your God. That was an option. And in fact, the very next chapter in Exodus gives an example of Gentiles who did just that. Moses' own father-in-law, the Midianite, Jethro. When Moses recounted to Jethro how God had rescued Moses' people and destroyed the Egyptian army, here was Jethro's response in Exodus 18, beginning in verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which Yahweh had done to Israel, that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. 
For in this matter they acted presumptuously against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. In other words, the God of Moses became the God of Jethro. That was an option. The Amalekites could have marched up to Israel and said, we want to be on your side because your God is really big and we don't want to mess with that. But they didn't. It's the second reason that the Amalekite attack on Israel was special. The way they attacked was inexcusable at every level. Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 17, Moses recounts that the Amalekites didn't come to a battle line to face the men of Israel in battle. They attacked from behind. They attacked the sick. They attacked the elderly. They attacked the children. They attacked those who were too slow to keep up with the rest of the group. They murdered the weak and the small and the frail who couldn't fight back. And there's a third reason that the Amalekite attack on Israel was special. They were first. They were the first nation to ever attack God's people in battle. In Numbers 24.20, God identifies the Amalekites as holding this particular dishonor of being the first nation to attack His beloved people. And now, because of all this, right after Israel defeated the Amalekites in battle, God made a very special pronouncement. In Exodus 17, beginning of verse 14, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial. And recite it in Joshua's hearing that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it Yahweh is my banner. And he said, because he has sworn with a hand upon the throne of Yah, Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Why? Because God promised Abraham, the one who curses you, I will curse. That's why. Now Israel would arrive at Mount Sinai. They would receive the law of God. Now they're under this covenant with God, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, or the Israelite covenant. And under this covenant, this temporary covenant, which takes them all the way to the cross, then the covenant is replaced. But under this covenant, the principle of the one who curses you, I will curse, is still good, but it's now contingent and based on covenant faithfulness, covenant obedience, to God's law. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 6, I shall also give you peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate wild beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land, but you will pursue your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. This is the promise. The one who curses you, I will curse. Uh, similarly, in Deuteronomy 28, 7, Yahweh shall cause your enemies to rise up against you who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. But the beginning of Deuteronomy 28 gives the stipulation. Now it will be, if you diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I am commanding you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you, if you listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. But in Deuteronomy 28, 14, and 17, but if you do not obey me and do not do all these commandments, I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. In other words, if Israel is in covenant obedience to God, he will always overthrow her enemies. He will always give her victory over those who curse, over those who revile, remember this word, over those who reproach 
the people of God. One theologian writes this, Scripture makes it exceedingly clear that David's victory was anything but a one-in-a-million type of upset. God had announced the outcome multiple times before David ever went out to fight the Philistine. See, what we're going to see is that David is completely confident in what the Lord's going to do. Why? Because he knows the Abrahamic covenant. The episode of David and Goliath is related to the past. It provides a foreshadowing of the future. Our first viewpoint, the foretelling of David's victory. The foretelling goes all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham. There's a second viewpoint to this truth we'll call the defending of God's honor. The defending of God's honor. Turn back a couple of pages to 1 Samuel 15 and we'll work our way back to David in the Valley of Elah. Remember the Amalekites, cursed by God because they reviled, they reproached God's people. They were the first nation to attack Israel and that God cursed them from generation to generation. Well, here they come again. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. So now obey the voice of the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself up against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, infant and nursing baby, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul was to continue out the defense of God's honor. The defense of God's people and the instructions are clear. Total annihilation of everyone and everything. Verse 8. And he, that is Saul, seized Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were not willing to devote them to destruction but everything despised and worthless they were, they, that they utterly destroyed. God had pronounced a death penalty on the Amalekites as a nation, including their king, including all of their stuff. But Saul kept the king alive and kept some of the best livestock. And so God tells Samuel that Saul has failed in his duty. He has not defended the honor of God. He has not kept covenant. Samuel had King Agag of the Amalekites brought to him and verse 33 says famously, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. He did this before God. Saul wouldn't defend God's honor, but Samuel was going to do it. And what was the result for Saul? The result was that his days as king were now numbered. And through Samuel, God declared to Saul in verse 23, because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. And so God sends Samuel to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and after looking over seven of Jesse's sons, God rejects each of them as the true king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the young men? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is shepherding the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not turn around until he comes here. So he sent him and brought him in. He was ruddy, means he had a red face, 
with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. By the way, you notice that his brothers know he's the true king of Israel. And yet, how do they treat him in the next chapter? Very badly. But this is important because now the Spirit of God rests on David. A special empowerment different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we enjoy as new covenant believers. This is a special help specifically for one man, for the king of Israel. And he enjoys this this, uh, empowerment. And now we come back to the next chapter in which the, the current king of Israel, the mighty man Saul, he's cowering in his tent and he sent a young man, David, to fight from what from human reasoning David can't win. He can't fight this battle. He can't win this battle. But remember what God promised Abraham, the one who curses you, I will curse. And you remember that God promised Israel if she was walking in covenant obedience, then God would slay her enemies. And so, has Israel been cursed? Have they been reviled? Have they been reproached? In verses 8 and 9 of 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is repeatedly challenging Israel to send a champion. Why? Verse 10. Again, the Philistine said, I openly reproach the battle lines of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The Israelite soldiers knew exactly what was happening. Verse 24, now all the men of Israel saw the man and they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to reproach Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who strikes him down with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David knew what was happening. Verse 26, then David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, What will be done for the man who strikes down this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should reproach the battle lines of the living God? And now, when David is explaining to Saul why he's so confident, guess what his reasoning is going to be? Verse 36, David tells Saul, Your servant has struck down both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has reproached the battle lines of the living God. And David said, Yahweh who delivered me from the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may Yahweh be with you. For Saul, that's just a a, a long shot hope. For David, he already knew what was going to happen. This battle is a demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness to his beloved nation of Israel See, the problem for Israel under Saul wasn't a military problem. Their problem was a spiritual problem. They desired a king that was like other kings. So God gave them one in Saul, a man who could not and would not trust the Lord when it counted most, when it was time to defend Israel against the Amalekites in the way that God prescribed. And so Goliath defies Israel twice a day for 40 days. What was Goliath doing on behalf of the Philistines? He was cursing Israel, and he did it 80 times. And remember, God promised victory to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant if the nation is in covenant obedience to him. Under Saul, they're not. They have a spiritual problem. 
So Israel's in a, in a desperate situation. Not a single man among them, not one, is going to defend the honor of God and trust the Lord. David was living in covenant obedience. He had great confidence in his God who blessed obedience with protection and victory. And so when David comes upon this situation with Goliath, his assessment is not a military assessment. It's a spiritual assessment. And David immediately identified a theological purpose to going up against Goliath. Now, I want you to know this. David's disdain for Goliath. And these are the first recorded words of David in Scripture, by the way. And he's defending the honor of God. Verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should reproach the battle lines of the living God? I can just hear all the other guys going, shh, don't say it so loud. This isn't a question. This is an assertion that this, this Philistine is nothing before God. Who does he think he is? David is disturbed by Goliath. Then a man outside the covenant relationship with God was so openly shaming Israel twice a day like clockwork, the people of God, and by doing so, insulting the living God. But now as David went forward to fight, not only was Goliath mocking the army of Israel, now when David came forth, Goliath cursed David by his false gods. And this is important. Verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Uh Uh-oh. This is no longer David versus Goliath. This is Yahweh versus the gods of the Philistines. The gauntlet's been thrown down. The challenge has been made. What does this mean? It means that the outcome was already certain. It was already going to happen. I want you to know this, that the spiritual condition of Saul and of Israel was completely devoid of genuine faith, completely devoid for, uh, of any concern for the honor of God. God is never mentioned in 1 Samuel 17 until verse 26 when David refers to God. David refers to God's honor. And significantly, as soon as David refers to God, Goliath's name is never mentioned again. The giant is mentioned by name twice as Goliath, but after David invokes the honor of God, Goliath is reviled. Goliath is made small. He's minimized. He's called this uncircumcised Philistine. He's called this Philistine. Verses 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 48. The Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine. It won't even give him his name. Goliath cursed David by his gods. And David repeatedly invokes the honor of the true and living God. And David boldly predicts with certainty his imminent victory over Goliath. Verse 45 Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the battle lines of Israel, whom you have reproached. This day Yahweh will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the camp of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh does not save by sword or by spear, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hands. God whom you have reproached. Now why is David so certain? Why can this kid from the sticks 
come and just lay out this giant with his words. Because he's not defending himself. He's defending God's glory, God's honor. And the Abrahamic covenant is the guarantee of this coming slaying of Goliath. This is not the story of an underdog miraculously defeating the giant against overwhelming odds. No. The Abrahamic covenant, David's covenant faithfulness, Goliath's repeated cursing of Israel 80 times, David's own heart desire to defend the honor of Yahweh, the empowerment of the Spirit upon David meant that Goliath had a 0% chance of taking out David. Has, has nothing to do with how well-armed Goliath was. David and Goliath is re- related to the past and the foreshadowing of the future. The first viewpoint, the foretelling of David's victory. The second viewpoint, the defending of God's honor. Here's a third viewpoint. The heralding of God's glory. The heralding of God's glory. This entire story is a setup for God to receive all the glory for God to glorify His own name, His own reputation. And we see this in at least two ways that I'll point out. First of all, we see the theme of David's weakness and his inadequacy in his own power, in himself. In verse 28, his own brother Eliab treats David with contempt. He even calls him arrogant and wicked. David is presented early in the chapter as just an errand boy, the the food carrier. And despite Goliath's complete lack of, or, or Goliath despises rather, this total lack of challenge. I suppose Goliath, a man with decades of fighting experience behind him, was kind of looking forward to King Saul, the biggest guy, coming out and maybe giving him a little bit of a challenge. But verse 42, the Philistine looked and saw David and he despised him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome experience uh, appearance. Some say that the ruddiness just meant he had a lot of zits on his face. You're sending a kid. Saul tries to convince David that only worldly power and strength could ever hope to defeat Goliath. In verse 38, Then Saul clothed David with his robes and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with his armor. Small question. If that was going to work for David, why wasn't anybody else doing that? 39, David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. David rightly assessed that he was not to to rest in the untested strength of men, but in the tested strength of God. And instead of going out to battle with as much armor and weaponry as possible, David gets some rocks. Verse 40, then he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So first of all, the weakness of David is shown on multiple fronts. He's totally inadequate in himself. He's going against the most battle-hardened man on planet Earth, and he's got some rocks to throw at him. But as if that wasn't enough, verses 4 through 7 give the jaw-dropping description of a massive beast. A giant listed at nine feet, nine inches tall. It's always discouraging to me when so many are quick to minimize anything in Scripture that they choose not to believe. So let's examine this for a moment. Was he actually a giant? Were there giants in the Bible? Well, Genesis 14, 6, and 7 list peoples called the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, and the Amorites. Now, the text there in Genesis 14 doesn't call them giants, but other texts do. 
Amos 2 verse 9 describes the Amorites as giants. Deuteronomy 2, 10 and 11 call the Yamim giants. Deuteronomy 2, 20 and 21 call the Zuzim or some translations the Zamzuzim, same people, giants. The same passage says that they are all as tall as the Anakim, the giants. The, the, the most common term for giants, the Rephaim, simply means giant, and it could be a, a generic term or a specific people. Either way, it meant giants. The earliest mention of giants in the Bible goes all the way back before the flood. In Genesis 6, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The spies of Israel sneaking into Canaan. You remember, they came back to Moses and they said, the Nephilim are there and they make us look like grasshoppers. Numbers 13, Goliath himself was a descendant of the Anakim, the sons of Anak, who intermingled with the Philistines. Now, there is some debate about his height since the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text used by most, most English translations, puts his height at six cubits and a span, as our text says, nine foot, nine inches. But some ancient manuscripts have him listed at four cubits and a span, or about six feet, nine inches. We're going to say with definite certainty here that nine feet, nine inches is definitely the most likely. I'll give you a couple of reasons. The sheer weight of his armor would demand that he be huge. A man, even 6'9", could not carry that much. And it's unlikely that every single member of Israel's army would be terrified of somebody who's 6'9". And King Saul, the son of Kish, a mighty warrior in his own right, and, and by far the tallest man in Israel, would have been well over six feet. So this isn't a stretch for him to take this man on. There are numerous other references to giants in the Bible as well. 2 Samuel 21, 1 Chronicles 20, Joshua 11, 1 Chronicles 11, 2 Samuel 23. And so, yes, there are giants in the Bible, both before the flood and after. What about other evidence that makes the existence of giants reasonable? Every major culture in ancient history has legends of giants. Greek and Roman mythology have giants. Norse mythology has giants. Every major African and Asian ancient culture have legends of giants. In fact, even Native Americans on their own continent had legends of giants. The legendary cowboy Buffalo Bill Cody, he wrote in his autobiography about a time that he interviewed some members of the Native American Sioux tribe. And here's what Buffalo Bill wrote. It was taught by the wise men of this tribe that the earth was originally peopled by giants who were fully three times the size of modern men. They were so swift and powerful that they could run alongside the buffalo, taking the animal under one arm and tear off a leg and eat it as they ran. So vainglorious were they because of their own size and strength that they denied the existence of a creator. When it lighted... When it lightened, they proclaimed the superiority to the lightning. When it thundered, they laughed. This displeased the great spirit. And to rebuke their arrogance, he sent a great rain upon the earth. The valleys filled with water and the giants retreated to the hills. The water crept up the hills and the giants sought safety on the highest mountains. Still the rain continued. The waters rose and the giants, having no other refuge, were drowned. Now, I note this because Native American culture believes not only in giants, but also in the worldwide flood that took them out. 
but the DNA for the giants were still in Noah and his family. Others say that Goliath is just a, some sort of mythological exaggeration of someone suffering from the syndrome of giant gigantism caused by an excess of growth hormones. But gigantism doesn't lead to great strength. And in fact, it leads to multiple physical problems and awkwardness. And gigantism isn't hereditary. The giants in the Bible are described as being sons of other giants. Deuteronomy 9, 1 Chronicles 20, and others. And so we can consider all of that. But I just like to believe what the Bible says. The best evidence that Goliath is of the legendary giants in Bible times is the fact that verses 4 through 7 go to great lengths to make certain that you as the reader know that Goliath is a beast. Now, why is this so important? Because just like God got glory over the greatest army in the world, Pharaoh's army, God would get glory over the greatest man in the world who represented a nation who reproached his name. And David gives glory to God for all that is due to him. Verse 37 And David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the hand of the lion and from the hand of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And what's David's theological reason for this battle? Verse 46, his theological reason is that all the earth may know that there is a God where? In Israel. Verse 48, then it happened that the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David. That David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And because God promised David, I will curse the one who curses you, or promised Abraham rather, and, and because David was covenant faithful with God, he was displaying obedience. Because he took up the banner of God's honor where Saul dropped it. And because of the faithfulness of God in the past, which David slew the lion and the bear, and based on the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and based on the fact that David was the true king of Israel who was called to defend the honor of God, and based on David's personal zeal to defend the glory of God, verse 49 says, And David sent his hand down into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. And based on all of this, there could be no other outcome. The stone flew true. Not because of David's arm, not because of his skill, not because of the law of physics where you could sling a stone at 150 miles an hour, not because of aerodynamics, not because it was the luckiest shot in the history of the world. But that stone was guided by one thing I will curse those who curse you. In verse 50, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and put him to death, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and put him to death and cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, so they fled. And the army of Israel, including the now very quiet brothers of David, by the way, pursued the Philistines and rendered the judgment of God on them, slaughtering them all the way back to their own cities. And not one time does David ever take any credit for what God did. Not once. Listen, there's only one pathway to the blessing of God, and that is to defend the honor of God alone. 
to submit to God in covenant obedience as a follower of Christ. It, it may be, as Jesus said, that you have to choose him over even loyalty to family. It may be the removal of a habitually rebellious and sinning church member from the church. It may be warning the unbeliever that his life and his flippant sinful ways are an affront to a holy God whose wrath against the unbeliever is building every single day. It may be losing your job because you won't obey godless rules to promote wickedness. The only way to spiritual success is to defend God's honor. You cannot expect the blessing of God in your life if you refuse to submit to God in covenant obedience to the new covenant stipulations. If your integrity to follow the Lord wavers, or if you minimize sin, or if you rationalize that the end justifies the means. Welcome to Saul's world. But if you will follow Christ, if you will glorify God, and you always defend His honor in your own life, then you can expect God's blessing. I told you this message is about the millennium, and we haven't mentioned that yet. The episode of David and Goliath is related to the past. It provides a foreshadowing of the future. I've given you three viewpoints so far. The foretelling of David's David's victory, the defending of God's honor, the heralding of God's glory. Here's the fourth viewpoint of this truth. The foreshadowing of God's king. The foreshadowing of God's king. Now, in our previous messages on the millennium, we've examined hermeneutics, Bible study methods. Let me talk to you about the hermeneutics of God. What are God's hermeneutics? God's initial promise to Abram to curse those who curse him and his people. God took this promise with a literal hermeneutic. He did it. It meant cursing, turning people over to destruction that had cursed Israel. God's promise to curse Amalek for viciously attacking Israel In Exodus 17, God took this promise with a literal hermeneutic all the way up to Samuel, finishing what Saul refused to do. And so David, walking in humble covenant obedience to God, using the hermeneutic of taking God at His word with God's promises to curse those who curse Him and His people, he fought with all the confidence in the Lord. Let me put it this way. If a thousand Goliaths had appeared, the outcome would have been the same. It would have been the same. You say, oh, that doesn't seem possible. See also Samson, who killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Now, given that God has promised Abraham to curse those who curse him and his people, given that the hermeneutics of God indicates that he will maintain that promise, even if it takes many centuries to fulfill, such as the Amalekites, then what should we expect when we read the official introduction of David. Verse 55. Now when Saul saw David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. And the king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. David introduces himself, the son of Jesse. Now, based on the hermeneutics of God, we should expect that the true king of Israel, David, promised by God, as we saw last time, that a man from his body will rule over Israel, over the world forever, then we should expect a direct connection, shouldn't we? 
In Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 1, we get a prophecy of the coming king of Israel on this earth. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. Listen to this. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. You see, the connection of David and Goliath to the coming millennial kingdom is that the true king of Israel will defend the honor of God's people, will defend the honor of God because God promised Abraham, I will curse those who curse you. You see, David and Goliath is just a preview. It's a coming attraction. It is a small, tiny, miniature version of another David and Goliath that is coming. Another David Goliath is coming up, and the outcome is just as certain as the first David and Goliath. At the end of the Great Tribulation, just like the forces of the Philistines gathered under the banner of one champion, Forces will gather against Israel under the banner of one champion. Zechariah 14.2 says, Indeed, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city will go forth in exile. But those left of the people will not be cut off from the city. Antichrist and his forces are coming against Jerusalem. And now we have David and Goliath once again. Only this David is the son of David, and this Goliath is called Antichrist, or the beast. Revelation 19, Then I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. Then the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the words were filled with, all the birds were filled with their flesh. Oh, does that sound familiar? All the birds eating the flesh of those that are killed by Jesus Christ himself. David told Goliath the same thing, that the birds of the sky would feast on the Philistines that day. And when Christ defeats the beast, the same thing will happen. Only Jesus Christ won't even use a stone. He will use a word to destroy his enemy. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples meditate on a vain thing. The kings of the earth will take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed together, saying, let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry. 
and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus prophesies Psalm 2. See, someday the son of David will return. If you bless him, you will be blessed. If you curse him, you will be destroyed. David and Goliath is just a preview. You haven't seen anything yet. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful for this preview of the coming of Christ. We're thankful for this preview of the fact that we have a Savior who is a descendant of David. And just as David slew Goliath under the certainty of the judgment of God on all who would curse God's people and curse God's name, so your dear Son, righteously indignant for the honor of your name, as he demonstrated in in a small way when he cleansed the temple on two different occasions, declaring that my father's house will not be turned into a den of thieves. It is a house of prayer. In the same way, he will return and he will slay the great enemy, the beast. And he will slay all who follow after the beast. And then he will set up his glorious kingdom Because while those who are against Christ will fall under the curse God gave to Abraham, those who curse you, I will curse. All who would follow under Christ fall under the blessing, and those who bless you, I will bless. What a joy it is, Lord. We look forward to that day when Christ Jesus returns and eradicates all evil from this world. We would join the Apostle John in praying, come, Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. We pray in his name, amen.